The story that is Holy Scripture invites us into a world of God's creation and salvation and blessing. God in human form, in action, on the very ground on which we also live. An incarnational story that is a flesh and blood story. A story worked out in actual lives, in actual places, not abstract ideas or programs or inspirational uplifting anecdotes, but a Jesus story in which we recognize the action of God in the everydayness of a local history in our stories, a sacramental story. As we are about to read from portions in Genesis 1 through 3, these are portions of Scripture that we are all terribly familiar with. But also, a passage that is so easy for us to miss the big picture of because of all the debates surrounding how do you read the word day in Genesis 1. All kinds of debates around how do we understand what Genesis 2 explains to us about vocation, even though it does have a lot to say. There's a whole lot here that God is unfolding for us in these opening chapters of Genesis that are nothing less than a story of his activity in a real world, in a real place, in a real uh, setting, one that was shared with humanity. And so I want you, as you listen to these portions of Genesis 1 through 3, I want you to keep in mind that I'm not trying to hide something or trick you with something which sometimes I do like to do in sermons and give a big reveal at the end. I'm going to give you right up front. You should expect, as we read through these scriptures, you should expect a Christ story. And what you should expect is your story. Let's read. I'm going to begin reading Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to list off the different places that I'm jumping to. And to be honest with you, I would love it if you don't try to follow along reading, but just sit there and listen. One of the things we tend to forget is even in Reformed circles where we, we do believe in the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of communion, sometimes we forget that there's the real presence of Christ in the reading of Scripture. So these are Christ's words. So listen. And listen for what Christ puts on your heart this morning as he speaks to you through the reading of his holy word. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. Moving down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Moving down into chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant on the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the, the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Down to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field than the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the Spirit said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made made for themselves loincloths. And now down to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, it is very much our desire to see you more clearly, so open our eyes this morning. It is very much our desire to love you more dearly, and so open up our hearts to receive you afresh this morning. And it is certainly our desire, Lord, to walk with you more nearly. And so present to us yourself once again and and show us, Lord, that we could not be any closer to you than by the union that we have with you through Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this sermon this morning is simply the story and symbols of participation in God's life and love. And I want us to look at that through three specific lenses. The first in creation, the second in Christ, the last in communion itself. There is an amazing thing that God has done for us with creation that we sometimes lose because of the age and culture in which we presently live. We live in a scientific age. We live in a time that um, is, is characterized and marked by empirical knowledge, or knowledge is that um, mainly and only which, by which you can touch, uh, taste, hear, smell. It's observable. It's something that can be touched. And what we have been told through the, through the decades in this period of, of this scientific revolution is that because of this, things that cannot be observed, things that cannot be handled and touched and seen, that these things are, are not a means for us to know and to understand the world in which we live. And whether or not we buy into that, we are surrounded by that message and we are bombarded by that message over and over and over again to the point that it becomes very natural for us to think scientifically, to think in terms of scientific understanding and knowledge. And there are great things that are coming from scientific understanding and knowledge. But with the temptation of separating that which is seen from that which is unseen, what we do is we set ourselves up to have a worldview that completely misses the amazing blessing that God has for us in revealing to us his power and purposes in creation. Not only do we live in a scientific age, we live in a period in which theology itself has often been defined as the queen of sciences, where theology itself has sometimes gotten caught up into the argument of how do we prove Christianity? How do we show it beyond all reasonable doubt? How do we, reveal, you know, how do we show the world uh, through clever arguments, through rational explanations, and, and even by trying to point to the historicity of, of empirical things like the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You know, how, do we, you know, how do we engage the world from that perspective? And what we are doing when we do that quite often is we are losing the blessing of the power 
and the purposes of God revealed to us here in creation. Beloved, one of the most helpful things for us to do, especially as Reformed Christians, is to figure out that we don't know everything. One of the most helpful things that we can do as Reformed Christians who take the Bible seriously and who need to keep taking the Bible seriously is to realize that God has not revealed everything about himself in the Bible. There is a whole lot more to God than what is contained in the words of Scripture. And this puts us, beloved, in a position of humility. Yes, taking the Bible seriously, but being humble before it and recognizing from the very beginning that God is not revealing everything about himself. In doing so, one of the things that helps open us up to is the reality that even in what God has revealed to us, it is utterly and completely replete with mystery. There is a mysteriousness to what God has revealed about himself, especially as he is related to his creation. And it is a wonderful mystery. It is a blessed mystery. And when we get caught up into either arrogance because of our theology, whether we get caught up in pursuing theology for the wrong reasons, whether we get caught up in the, in the way that the scientific worldview around us has formed and shaped us in ways we're not even aware of, what happens is we lose the blessing of the power and purposes of God as he has revealed them for us here in creation. John Calvin himself says of creation that there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of God's glory. You cannot in one glance survey this most vast and beautiful system of the universe in its wide expanse without being completely overwhelmed by the boundless force of its brightness. This skillful ordering of the universe is for us a sort of mirror in which we can contemplate God who is otherwise invisible. Let me put that into different words. Gerald Manley Hopkins has said that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. One of the things that we have to embrace from the very opening of Scripture is that what God is revealing here in creation is not revealed first and foremost as an argument against Darwinian evolution. This is the beginning of an incredible story where God creates and then immediately enters his creation. And the power and purpose that we see here in these opening verses of Genesis is that he moves a creation that begins in total darkness a creation that is formless and void, meaning it has no structure, meaning it has no life. And he takes this 
dark, formless, lifeless creation. And by day seven, what we have is an existence of total light where there is no darkness that is revealed to us. Throughout the creation week, we are told over and over and over that there was evening and then there was morning. Let me put it to you another way. There was darkness and then there was light. It starts out all dark, and then as the week goes along, it goes darkness to light, darkness to light, darkness to light, darkness to light. When you get to day seven in Genesis chapter two, the phrase, there was evening and there was morning, does not exist. And it's the only day listed there that does not have that refrain. And so the picture is that day seven here is presented to us as only a day of light. And do you see the big picture as God's unfolding it even here from the very beginning? That his purposes are to move the world from darkness to light. From total darkness to total light. And the power that he has to accomplish that is revealed to us in some amazing ways as we, he uses light and his word and his spirit. Light, word, and spirit are these incredible presentations of the blessing of God's life-giving presence within creation. He is not simply sitting outside pulling some strings. He is inside. And he is forming and he is structuring the world around his presence. And his presence is giving life. It is giving form. It is giving structure. It is giving purpose. What's also so cool about this is that for the first generation who would be receiving this this story of God's creation, it was that generation that had been enslaved in bondage and slavery in Egypt. It was the generation that was being redeemed from bondage and slavery in Egypt. It was the generation that was following God on a pilgrimage to the promised land. And they were going to a promised land that had religions. They were coming from a a land of enslavement and they were headed to a a promised land where they were going to be surrounded by these different religions who had these different ideas. And two of the key ideas that that I want to bring up to you today are the fact that, one, in the ancient Near East, the only person who was said to be created in the image of God was the king. The king was in the image of God. No one else. The king alone had a special privileged status of somehow being connected to the gods in a special way that no one else had. And what did that result in? The king used people. He saw the people around him as tools and instruments to get him what he wanted. Now, why did he do that? Well, because in the ancient Near East, the idea of how humanity came into existence was that the gods didn't want to have to do things for themselves, so they created slaves. And the purpose of humanity was to serve the gods, to do things to provide the gods the things that they wanted. And so as the king was created in his image, 
he continued that same idea of using people. And so the people around the king were servants. And if you were from a foreign land, you were a slave. God here says that he's created humanity in his image. Not just the king, but all of humanity. Male and female. Every male. Every female in the image of God. But what's remarkable beyond that is notice the emphasis that God places here on his provisions of food and water and everything needed to sustain life. God did not only create the king in his image to have someone to enslave people to provide him what he wanted. God has created everyone in his image and has provided his people everything that they needed for life. The incredible thing here is God is pictured as serving humanity rather than humanity being a slave to his desires and his appetites. You notice the detail that he goes into about food, about trees, trees of every kind, trees with all these different kinds of fruit, that there are as other kinds of food, And that there is this beautiful presentation of a garden being unfolded where God is pictured as dwelling with man. And and that God's presence is one that is reflected through the provisions for life. That God's presence is reflected in the provisions of beauty. What's incredible here is not only do we see the life-giving presence of of God here in, in creation... God's life-giving presence is communicated through concrete, material things. Someone might say concrete, material symbols. Where God's blessing is not merely a blessing of words. Where God's blessing is not some abstract thing to be studied and torn apart and analyzed. God's blessing is a blessing of trees and beauty and fruit and food and purpose. God provides Adam and Eve vocation. He provides them the institution of marriage. He is providing them and a concrete unfolding of his blessing in that he has seen everything that he has made and he declares it very good. Now there is a lot of implications for this. But the main implication that I want to get you to at least consider this morning is that from the very beginning of creation, what we see is that the material world is not something that's just, you know, on the side of what God's main purposes are. The material world 
is the theater in which he is choosing to act. The material world is the theater in which he's choosing to blessing, to, to bless. And the material world, beloved, has value not because it gives us stuff. It has value not because there are things for us to accumulate or things to satisfy our appetites or things that we can use in order to exert power over other people. Material, the material world exists, beloved, to be a window through which we interact with the heavenly presence of God. The giving of food was a provision by which man was to eat that food and through the enjoyment of that food to enjoy the God who had provided it. The work that gave their lives purpose and structure was to be engaged as a way by which they worshipped and adored the Lord and that they actually experienced his presence and his blessing. Food, vocation, marriage. These are all very tangible material things that the Lord has provided that are windows that we interact with and through interacting with them, we are lifted to the heavenlies. Material is extremely important to what the Lord is doing. And what we see here is that food is not simply food. Food provides a hidden presence of God. Your vocation provides the hidden presence of God. Your marriage provides the hidden presence of God. And we don't have to limit it to those things. Beloved, life in this world was meant to be a means by which we experienced the hidden presence of God. But what we see in Jesus Christ is that this hidden presence was not always meant to be hidden. And the garden templing presence of God here in Genesis 1 and 2 becomes the tabernacling presence of God in flesh in the life of Jesus Christ, the God-man who is God dwelling with his people, who dwelled with his people in a specific place, in a specific time, who ate food with his disciples, who wept with his disciples, who slept with his disciples, that he was a God-man, fully God, fully man, and the presence of God was revealed in, in Jesus Christ himself. That the symbols of blessing in the creation account were always meant to tell us to anticipate that God's blessing, uh, the blessing of God's presence would not always remain spiritual, but would become physical where God himself would allow himself to be touched and handled. Even to the point, beloved, that because of sin separating God from his world would overcome that separation by, by allowing himself as one in the flesh to be touched and handled by wicked men who would put him on a cross who would nail him there as a sacrifice 
for the sins of God's people. And where we as God's people find our satisfaction for the pattern of sin that we have inherited from our first parents. And in God's miraculous glory, he caused his son not to be raised spiritually, but physically and bodily, where his disciples in his resurrection were able once again to touch and to handle. They could see him and they could hear him speak. Christ has gone on in bodily form now to be at the right hand of his Father in the heavenlies where he ever lives to intercede for us. We do not see him in the way that the disciples saw him and we don't hear him in the way that they heard him and and we don't touch him in the way that they touched him. But beloved, he has given us something to touch and to handle. He has even given us something to taste whereby the hidden presence of God that became revealed in Jesus Christ is revealed to us anew every time we come before the bread and as we come before the cup, as we see the body and as we see the blood and as we see them not merely for the material that they are, but as they are symbols and as they are windows through which we ascend to the heavenly presence of God. Beloved, it is not just in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we see the value of material leading us into intimacy with God. It is a special way that we experience that. It is a special way that Jesus has given us to commune with him. It is a special thing that he has given us to be able to touch and to handle and to taste and to eat. But there is a general blessing, beloved, that is found every time you eat. If you approach that food as coming from God's hand as a means by which to cause you to ascend through the material into the heavenly, that we move through the earthly to the heavenly. We move from what is seen and we move through that to what is unseen. And so, beloved, it is let the sacrament this morning itself not only form and shape your faith, let the sacrament form and shape your worldview by which every second of your day is lived in a concrete reality where God is making himself known through every little part of every seemingly meaningless detail of your life. There is not one second that you breathe that God is not revealing his presence to you. The question is, do we have the eyes to see him? Do we have the heart to long for him? Do we have the faith to grasp hold of the unseen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for this incredible blessing of not only the gospel of Jesus Christ, but 
your very power and purposes that have been revealed from the very beginning. That you are revealing yourself. Yes, in these incredible open ways, these theophonic ways, these glorious displays, but that is not the only place that you reveal yourself. And so help us to see you afresh this morning as we grab the, as we grab the bread and may we lay hold of the body of Christ. As we drink the cup, may we take in the blood of Christ. These are things that cannot be explained scientifically. And their value is not simply because they are spiritual and immaterial. But here before us is the mystery of Christ with us, Christ within us. And so help us to break free of our scientific worldviews. Help us to break free of the way science has affected our theology. And help us, Lord, to continue day after day to enter through the material world into the heavenly places where you say that we are already raised up and seated with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.